Lockdown Science. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM with me, Ellie. And me, Andrew. Another week in lockdown means another episode of this show where we try to highlight some of the cool science we've found recently that has absolutely nothing to do with coronavirus. There's a lot of it, but for understandable reasons, it's not getting much press. In case you're mainly here for updates on our cat, Suki, she has gone from being delighted by our constant presence to tiring of us. She still demands cuddles, but there is a certain ennui on her face that shows she is resentful of our current situation. In case you're also resentful of the current situation, let's get on with the show and tell you about the weird and wonderful science we've discovered this week. Science of the Week First up, we have our Science of the Week quiz, where I test Andrew on his knowledge of science that has hit the press in the last week or so. Are we ready? No. Have you looked at the news at all this week? Very briefly, about five minutes ago. Excellent. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, there's not been a lot other than coronavirus, so you may well have covered it all. I'm hoping so. Go for it. Right. Number one. What new discovery in lab rats potentially offers hope for stroke survivors? Ooh, that's exciting. And that's not the medical discovery I read about this week. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's a shame, isn't it? No, I don't know. So a new study in PNAS by Palma Tortosa et al. details how the group of scientists at Lund University in Sweden reprogrammed skin cells from a human to become nerve cells and then transplanted these into the brains of adult rats that had survived strokes and found out that after six months, the rats regained some of their motor function and sense of touch. So the transplanted cells correctly reconnected into the damaged neural circuits and had grown into the other side of the brain where they hadn't been initially transplanted. So obviously this is a huge way off from being you know, a therapeutic option for humans who've had strokes. But it's a very cool discovery and maybe somewhere down the line it could be translated into therapeutic medicine to help those with brain injuries or strokes. That's very interesting. So that was human cells that were grafted onto rats? Yes, weird because you'd think that would be easier to first do rat to rat i'm not a medic or a cell biologist but i wonder whether is it easier to get a human cell to take in a human than it is in a rat you think so maybe it has been done in rat to rat before i'm not too much up on my rat to rat cell transplants but it's very cool i mean with all these things you have to go this doesn't mean that it works in humans but there's the potential that it could do somewhere down the line. It's very cool. It is cool. Right, so you got that wrong. Uh, (laughs) Number two. Not out of one, going well. (laughs) What is the name of the mission to the moon that suffered misfortune but eventually returned to Earth 50 years ago tomorrow? Apollo... Yeah. 13. 13. Yes, yes, exactly. You got that. Apollo 13. So it was launched on the 11th of April 1970 and was meant to land on the moon, but two days into the mission, an oxygen tank failed, meaning that the lunar landing had to be aborted. And they instead looped around the moon and miraculously piloted the craft back to Earth, splashing down in the South Pacific on April the 17th, 1970. That's just a crazy story. The fact they survived seems so unlikely. But But for a bonus point, what's the famous phrase from this mission that one of the crew said to ground control when they realised they had an issue? Uh, it's a very famous fra- phrase. The only thing I can think of is ground control to Major Ton. Absolutely not that. That's the wrong way around. <laughs> Great song. <laughs> Great song. <laughs> but I don't think David Bowie was taking his inspiration no, from Apollo not. 13 missions. Think about it, right? If you are in a spacecraft... I got it. Yeah. Is it Houston we have a problem? Basically, yes. Oh. Okay. Um, this 
that's what people tend to think of it as, Houston, we have a problem. But that's actually the quote from the 1995 film Apollo 13. On the actual mission, astronaut Jack Swigert said, OK, Houston, we've had a problem here. And then Jim Lovell, another of the astronauts, repeated, uh, Houston, we've had a problem. So not quite, but basically the same thing. So I'm going to give you the point for that. Definitely much more sensible than ground control to Major Tom. <laughs> yeah, because really it should be Major Tom to ground control. Exactly. But I have got that song stuck in my head now. Number three. Which beetle has been rediscovered in Pembrokeshire after not being seen in Wales for over 70 years? Ooh. I don't know, but weirdly, despite the fact I'm a biologist and not much of a music fan, my first thought when you said which beetle was, wait, is it Paul or John or Ringo or George? I don't know. The short-necked oil beetle. You've seen oil beetles I've seen oil beetles, yes. I wouldn't have been able to name a short-necked oil beetle. Well, so the species was once widespread across the UK, but suffered huge declines in the 20th century. And between 1948 and 2006, there were no UK sightings at all. So it's now found in a few places in the UK. One of the islands of the Inner Hebrides, a location in Devon and on the Salisbury Plain. So this new confirmed sighting in Pembrokeshire is very exciting. They're not particularly obvious. I mean, you've seen other oil beetles, right? Yeah. So they're like they're pretty small. This one's about two and a half centimetres in length. But they are really pretty. Yeah, oil beetles are cool. They've got a proper like sheen to them. Yeah. I, like which, oil or water. I was going to say, I'm guessing that's where I think so, oil yeah, comes I think from. That's why. So they're really pretty. They, they have these like glossy dark blue black kind of oil like bodies and this is a really good time to look out for them because you know well obviously on your daily exercise prescription with your eyes trained on the ground yes because they are active from spring to early summer although as the story shows you're very unlikely to actually find them unless you're in the right place i love beetles so much yeah. I mean, I study them, so I'm biased. But do you remember the quote that people often bring up? The, I think the, it's a little bit disputed who actually said it, but they think it was JBS Haldane, who was an early 20th century scientist, who, when asked, what can you tell about God from natural history, what did he say? Uh, it was something along the lines of whatever his passion or, or interest, he had an inordinate fondness for beetles. Yeah. Because there were so many species of beetle. Exactly. If you actually look at how much diversity on, there is on Earth... A crazy percentage of it is just beetles. Number four, paleontologists have discovered the fossilised skull of a tiny toothed bird that lived 99 million years ago. It appears to be the smallest known dinosaur from the Mesozoic era. How big was its skull in length? The the smallest known dinosaur? In the Mesozoic era. In the Mesozoic. You can either give me in comparison to a current living bird, Mm. or you can give me in centimetres the length of its skull. Is that including any kind of proto-beak? I think so. Okay, let's go with a centimetre and a half. That's pretty good, actually. Yeah, 12 millimetres. Oh. Yeah, that's not too far off. You know, I'll give you that. that I'll give you that. I'm feeling kind. So it's about the size of a bee hummingbird, which is... The smallest living bird. The smallest living bird, exactly. You know where you can see a bee hummingbird? Where can you see one? Zoology Museum in Cambridge. But the funny thing about that one is... It's an Easter egg. Yeah. It's not labelled. Exactly. It's underneath 
a Somali ostrich, which is the largest bird in the world. And I love the fact, I, I, it's, I sort of don't like the fact it's not labelled, but I sort of do, because I love the idea that someone would go in there and see this enormous bird skeleton of an ostrich, which is labelled, and then look down at the bottom and think, is that a baby one? Yeah. <laughs> What's that? It's so small. But yes, it's an Easter egg. I, I do like that. A study by Xing et al, published in Nature on Friday, introduces this new dinosaur species named Oculodontavis cuangrae, and I've probably absolutely butchered that name. Um, it had a tiny head, only, yeah, about 12 millimetres long, rivalling our current smallest bird, the bee hummingbird. It was found encased in a chunk of amber from about 99 million years ago, and it lived in the Mesozoic era, which lasted from about 252 million to 66 million years ago. And the way that the bones around its eyes are formed suggests that it had small pupils and was therefore diurnal, so day active, and it had very sharp eyesight. And its teeth suggest that it was a predator. So it was an adorable little murderer, most likely of arthropods and small fish, they think. How cute. I know. Also, small enough to be preserved in amber. Yeah. normally when we find things in amber, it's insects or invertebrates and little things. But exactly. this is so small that there are plenty of invertebrates that are bigger than that, I suppose. So tiny, so small. Right, number five. What item, dating back to around 50,000 years ago, was found in a cave in France recently that suggests that Neanderthals were more cognitively similar to us than we might expect? A piece of string. Ooh, you read this one. I did read this nice. one, yeah. Because, let me see if I can get this right, because it's something to do with the fact that it, the cognition needed to understand the pattern to, because it was woven, or yeah. it, was, it was interlaced. Yeah, pretty much. It's a tiny piece of yarn they found, and it was woven together from three pieces of twisted fibres, and it's now the oldest example of textile technology. And what's particularly cool about it is that it's such an incredible discovery, but the yarn itself is so unassuming. It's just six millimetres long, and it's thought to be made from the inner bark of a conifer tree. And what's remarkable about it is that it's actually been preserved, because it's made from perishable material. You wouldn't expect it to survive. And making yarn might sound simple, but like you said, so the study by Hardy et al. in Scientific Reports notes that understanding and the use of twisted fibres implies the use of complex multi-component technology as well as a mathematical understanding of pairs, sets and numbers, which is something I'd never thought about. I mean, I knit and now I like to think that that means I do maths. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have. I, I, I started reading that and I was like, I don't really understand it was not immediately obvious why that was so indicative of cognition but yeah we just take it for granted but you you just don't think about it yeah we take for granted that it does actually take quite a lot of cognition to sort of follow that pattern to weave something so implies that neanderthals are pretty smart the question is are you well what score did you get on the quiz you got a total so i'm giving you a bonus point as well i'm going to give you the tiny dinosaur so that's actually a score of four out of six Mm, that is that is better than bafflingly mediocre which is what i was expecting i mean that's two one yeah, I think maybe in Neanderthal probably would have beat you. Probably, yeah. I mean, I also can't knit, whereas apparently they can. Journal Club. Next up, we're going to share with you a couple of our favourite papers. What have you got, Ellie? A study published by Ramacha et al. at the start of April in The Orc has shown that climate change may be having a striking effect on the physiology of nightingales. So what do you know about nightingales, first of all? They're fantastic songsters. They are? And I also happen to have seen this study as well. But yeah, yeah, you've probably read it in more detail than me. (laughs) Almost certainly. (laughs) 
Okay, so but they're also migratory. They and are. I think that's important. That is going to be important. Well, if you haven't seen a nightingale before, they are small, unremarkable-looking brown birds. They're a little bit bigger than a robin, but they are famed throughout poetry and prose for their incredible vocal dexterity and creativity. And they travel enormous distances between their wintering grounds in Africa and their breeding grounds in Europe. But this study shows that due to a changing climate, that migration may be getting more difficult. 20 years of monitoring two populations of nightingales in central Spain has shown that their wings are getting shorter in comparison to their body size over time. This is problematic because their long wings are partly what makes them such effective migrators. Over the same time period of 20 years, the researchers found that in the region, the onset of spring was becoming increasingly delayed, but summer droughts were becoming more intense and insect populations were booming earlier in the year, meaning that nightingales had a shorter period to breed with a more limited food supply. So life history theory predicts that in situations like this, the nightingales may benefit from reducing reproductive input. And it may be the case that there is a set of lynx genes that make them effective migrants. Kind of large wings, large clutches, short lifespans. So if selection works on one of these, for example, maybe they start to have fewer eggs, then their wings could also become shorter because of the link traits. Now, natural selection appears to be in effect here, but it's driven by climate change to allow the birds to cope with shorter breeding periods rather than to help them migrate. The problem is that longer wings are correlated with a higher likelihood of a nightingale surviving their first round-trip migration. So the shorter wings might be a mitigation for climate change in the short term, but then reduce their ability to migrate in the long term. Isn't that scary? Yeah, that's really weird. Excellent example of antagonistic selection. Exactly, right? Yeah. We should spread all this those, All those undergrads ideas. out there, yeah. Yes, undergrads. Great Note example. For your exams you're not having. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we said this would be coronavirus free. But things are really negative at the moment. So I didn't want to finish my paper highlight on a downer. So I'm going to bring up some really cool things about nightingales. Do you have a favourite thing about nightingales? I, their song. I mean, I know that's a cliche, but I've never seen a nightingale. And I think it's probably, I mean, this is more of a downer, but it's it's sad that I've actually only ever once heard a nightingale as well, when there's something that actually used to be really common in the countryside. But the song is incredible. And it is just like nothing else. It was like a noise out of a bush behind mm-hmm. me that I just, I just stopped and went, what on earth is that? And, and it's like nothing you've ever heard. And then it kind of like, well, it can only be one thing. It can really only be one bird. And it, it was incredible. Exactly. Nightingales have a really crazy, complicated repertoire. They're able to produce over a thousand different sounds, which obviously sounds like a lot. But if we compare that to other famous singers, it becomes even more impressive. So which other birds do you think sing a lot? Skylarks are amazing. Exactly. But skylarks can produce around 340 different sounds compared to the nightingales. So nightingales are three times more. Yeah, exactly. And then blackbirds, also great singers, but they produce about 100 sounds. Mm. So blackbirds are one of the things that people often mistake for nightingales. So there's a a similar sort of note that blackbirds and, and robins both have. 
And people sometimes will say, oh, I've heard a nightingale in the garden. Actually, it's far more likely to have been a robin or a blackbird mm. or a song crush. So they are genuinely very impressive, even compared to other great singers. And in nightingales, the part of the brain responsible for creating sound is actually proportionally larger than in most birds. Mm. Another cool fact. Interesting. And another cool fact, it has been known for a really long time that nightingales overwintered in sub-Saharan Africa, but not exactly where. But in 2010, BTO scientists, that's the British Trust for Ornithology, their scientists tracked a nightingale from its breeding site in Norfolk to its wintering area in Guinea in the west of Africa. And that's nearly 5,000 kilometres away. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing for something so tiny. Yeah, I know, right? It's incredible. I mean, it just makes me feel very lazy. (laughs) I I can understand why back in the day people thought up all these crazy stories to explain where birds went in the winter because migration is too ridiculous to, to really think that it would be possible. So people used to think that swallows spent the winter in the bottom of ponds. <laughs> Obviously. Because, yeah, because they all did, they were there in the summer and then they disappeared and then they suddenly came out when the weather got nice. And how would, how could they possibly have flown to another continent? Yeah. That's just ridiculous. That's the thing. Going to the bottom of a pond does seem like a simpler thing to do. It's more logical. Yeah, yeah, than flying thousands of kilometres. Anyway, so I thought that that was really interesting but a, a little bit depressing. So I've rounded off with some nice facts. But what have you got for us this week? Well, I've got two papers. Oof. I know, I've gone off brief already, but there's a reason they're linked. Okay. Um, these are two papers which I think demonstrate a perfect example of how to carry out evidence-based science. You, you look for a gap in the literature and then you go out or someone else goes out and, and tests it. So the first paper is what I think can only be described as a seminal paper mm-hmm. from 2003 in the British Medical Journal by Smith and Pell. And what they did was they were interested in looking for whether there was any evidence for a fairly widely accepted life-saving medical intervention, which is the use of parachutes when jumping from aircraft. Or, as they put it in their title, in response to gravitational challenge, which (laughs) I think is is just, yeah, that's wonderful. They wanted to know whether there was actually any good, robust evidence for the fact that parachutes were good at saving lives or reducing major trauma. I mean, I've just been assuming all these years, like a sheep that like, there is. Like an absolute sheep. Yeah. yeah. And it turns out that in a systematic review, they found no randomised controlled trials that tested the effectiveness of parachutes. Shocking. Absolutely. I mean, so randomised controlled trials are the pinnacle of medical evidence. They're sort of held up as the gold standard. This is how we test whether our medical interventions uh, or indeed our conservation interventions are working and, and actually genuinely effective. And there's, there's no evidence. So, you know, Know, there's a gap in the, some science. in the medical literature. Astonishingly, it took 15 years for this gaping hole in our knowledge to be plugged. All the while, people were using parachutes. All the while, people were, were using parachutes and just assuming that it was doing better than nothing. But fortunately, Yay et al. came to the rescue in 2018. Thank God. Uh, with a paper entitled Look Before You Leap, Parachute Use to Prevent Death and Major Trauma When Jumping from Aircraft. And their aim was to respond to Smith & Pell and to test in a randomised controlled trial whether parachutes were effective. So I'll just run you through the little summary Mm. at the beginning of this because I don't want anyone to be confused about where this is going. So their objective, to determine if using a parachute prevents death or major traumatic injury when jumping from an aircraft. Participants, 92 aircraft passengers were screened for participation, 23 agreed to be enrolled and were randomised. Intervention, jumping from an aircraft with a parachute versus an empty backpack, unblinded. The results, parachute use did not significantly reduce death or major injury. Okay. Bold claim. Bold claim. There were no deaths. Okay. 
in either, in either I, treatment. I think we just need to start off with that. This is not a really tragic study. Nobody died. Nobody died. But um, why? But why? They compared the 23 who agreed to be enrolled with the remainder of the 92 who didn't participate, and they found there were no differences in, in age or sex or weight of the participants. And that's really important because you want to know whether you've automatically selected for healthier individuals or whether males or females have a particular predisposition to, to a problem. People who are more likely to bounce. People are more likely to bounce, yeah. yeah. There was a little difference. The participants who were included in the study were jumping from aircraft at significantly lower altitude. Okay, so significantly lower altitude, I'm thinking like maybe half the height that a plane would be at. Down a little bit. Yeah? Uh, Yeah. The mean height of the non-participants was 9,000 metres. The mean height... The non-participants, as in the population of aircraft users who didn't want to be involved in the trial. So these are just regular people? They didn't jump out of any planes. Okay. 9,000 metres, standard aircraft height. The people who did jump out of the planes were at a mean height... Of 0.6 meters, <laughs> uh, huh? and and also also at a lower velocity of naught kilometers per hour. <laughs> I'm going to need some clarification. So what this actually is is a sort of tongue-in-cheek point to point out that randomised controlled trials are really, really important. They're really important for, for medical evidence. And the first article was really kind of poking fun at the fact that people sort of say, oh, you know, we should we should have randomised controlled trials for everything. And whilst it is important to challenge medical dogma with proper science, there might be a few cases where some common sense has to be applied. But the second paper is kind of taking that a step further, where they're kind of going, randomised controlled trials are really important, but you have to look at how they're done. And you have to make sure that you take the context of the study in full to fully understand the results because the headline of this paper could quite easily be parachutes have no effect on likelihood of dying when jumping out of an aircraft with the fairly major caveat that only if you do it from half a meter off the ground so the discussion sort of proceeds about the fact that they didn't find any difference and then there's a sort of minor caveat that although randomized participants had similar characteristics compared with those screened they could have been at lower risk of death or major trauma because they jumped from an average height of 0.6 metres on an aircraft moving at 0 kilometres an hour. Because really, jumping from 0.6 metres, your biggest risk is maybe a twisted ankle yeah. rather than death on high impact of the ground. Yeah, but the, but the important point is that studies evaluating devices entrenched in clinical practice face the difficult task of ensuring that patients with the greatest expected benefit from treatment are included. Mm. So, so, the, so the point is that you might, when testing a medical intervention, be inclined to say, well, someone who really needs the treatment we can't possibly put them into into the control category because they have to have the treatment mm-hmm. and therefore the people who you do the proper test on are actually people who aren't really at risk anyway and that's yeah. what's going on here so similarly you wouldn't really drop someone from an airplane with just a backpack because they really do need a parachute they really do yeah and actually the, the, this is the final line i wanted from the conclusion parachute use compared with backpack control did not reduce death or major traumatic injury when used by participants jumping from an aircraft this largely resulted from our ability to only recruit participants jumping from stationary aircraft on the ground individual judgment should be exercised when applying these findings at higher altitudes yeah i'm going to put out a disclaimer parachutes are really important don't try this at home kids yeah <laughs> there's there's no need to test this at higher altitudes no we we know that parachutes are very useful but isn't that a great and i mean the british medical journals come up trumps again there. i know right it's great such good i, I mean the, the the stats is is perfect the experimental design is perfect and it's just 
I mean, it's making a point this time. It's making an it's, important point. Yeah. You know, there's you, you get drawn in by the hilarity, and then you go, you know what, guys? We've learned something. We've all learned something. Isolation recommendations. Right, well, we've just got a couple of minutes left, so let's finish off with some isolation recommendations. Andrew, I've set you the challenge of your best Twitter account for lockdown this week. What will you be recommending? In the last week, spring has definitely sprung, and that means that my favourite group of animals have started to take to the wing butterflies. Now some butterflies overwinter as adults which means that they will be emerging as soon as the sun comes out when the weather warms up a little bit and even on random days in January if the the sun's out and it's a little bit warmer you'll see them flying around. But most butterflies spend the winter as eggs, pupae or caterpillars and they need a little bit more time to reach adulthood. But that time has come so if you're gazing out of your window or lying in your garden and wondering what that little orange flash is or what you want to identify the white or blue butterfly sat on a leaf, then I'm going to point you straight to the Twitter account of at UK Butterflies. Mm-hmm. So this is an account run by Peter Eels, who's a butterfly enthusiast and expert and an excellent photographer. Um, it's full of fascinating facts and interesting links. And it's all beautifully illustrated with stunning photographs. And let's be honest, pretty pictures are the real reason why we're all on Twitter, right? Yes. Pretty pictures and memes, I and would memes, say. Yeah. I'm really in it yeah. for the memes. The memes, but... <laughs> OK. I'm in, it for, I'm in it for the pretty pictures. I just follow <laughs> butterfly accounts. But this this comes with, you know, interesting facts. And he, he's good at retweeting bits of science and stuff. Yeah, um, no, I would so agree with that, cool actually. It is a very good account. And you might learn something. What have you got, Ellie? Well, this week I'll also be offering up my favourite Twitter account. Sometimes Twitter and social media in general can be an uncomfortable place for women because of the men who like to slide into our DMs with photos that we never asked for. A Twitter account that sounds like it might be something like that, but is actually entirely the opposite, is unsolicited dick dicks, which is at unsolicited dicks. For context, dick dick is spelt D-I-K, and a dick dick is the name given to four species of antelope. They're really small, they're around 30 to 40 centimetres tall, and they have these silly kind of snouty noses, and they live in the shrublands and savannas of eastern Africa. They're one of my favourite animals, they're just, just so cute. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, they're so they're, they are adorable. I um, saw them a lot in Ethiopia. <laughs> oh, I love them so much. And this Twitter account basically just posts photos of dick dicks. And if you tweet them saying that you're having a bad day, they'll just send you photos of dick dicks personally. So there's nothing unsolicited about them at all. They're very respectful dick dicks. Anyway, yes, I, I, if you want to forget all the terrible things in the world for just a minute, have a scroll through in unsolicited dick dicks on Twitter. But please, and I can cannot stress this enough. Please spell it right. D-I-K. I take absolutely no responsibility for what you find if you spell it wrong. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun, but that's all we have time for. Because you're going to search the internet for more pictures of dick dicks. Absolutely. I have my priorities straight. Well, thanks for joining us today. If you want to send us your thoughts or recommendations for cool science we should look into, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. And I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. And since I'm CAMFM's head of publicity, yes, I'm that strange person who updates all the social media. You can also contact me via email at publicity at camfm.co.uk and I might pass on the message to him if I'm feeling nice. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We actually only set out to do two episodes of this before Ellie's new series of Us and STEM starts up again on CamFM. Which it does next week, by the way. Tune in every Friday at 6pm. But maybe we should continue. Why not drop us a DM and let us know what you think. Either yas, carry on, or please know you're making lockdown even worse. And we'll have a think about it. 
Either way, thanks for tuning in and I hope we've been a bit of a lockdown distraction. 